Hello, comrades. My name is Jack Helinski Fitzpatrick from the International Marxist Tendency in Britain. If you have somehow missed the other sessions, you might notice that I am pausing. This is because this event is being translated into 12 languages at once. So these translators need time to translate. And this is allowing comrades from all over the world to participate. The speaker for this session is Hamid Elizadeh, a revolutionary with the International Marxist Tendency. And he will be speaking on the subject of post-colonialism. This is a very important discussion to have. As Marx said, the ruling ideas in any society are the ideas of the ruling class. And post-colonialism has become possibly the main theory that is taught in the universities at this time. And this is precisely because it has no answers when it comes to fighting oppression. To briefly explain the timings, Hamid will speak for 90 minutes, including translation. We will then have a 10-minute break. This is much shorter than has been the case for other sessions, but we have had many requests to uh, speak in the discussion, and we want to fit them all in. After the break, we will have 75, and Hamid will then sum up for 15 minutes. So I will now pass over to Hamid uh, to begin the discussion. Uh, thank you very much, Jack. Now, uh, comrades, I was at the postmodernism session yesterday, and if you weren't there, you should definitely watch it later uh, when we're going to publish it on Marxist.com. Uh, because post-colonial theory is really one of the strains of, of postmodernism, which, uh, which builds on the same basic ideas. But the difference, I would say, from the purely philosophical uh, postmodernist uh, writings is that, it's, uh, that postcolonialism is sometimes a little bit more concrete. But what that really serves to show is how extremely reactionary ideas you can reach by applying postmodernism. Now, the main text, which is said to be the, the originator of this field of, of postcolonialism, is a book by uh, Edward Said called Orientalism from 1978. And uh, to be fair to Edward Said, his starting point is to criticize the deep-seated racism which runs through capitalism, uh, Western capitalism, and in literature in particular, official culture towards the, the Orient, so to say, uh, by which he means the oppressed nations, although he mainly talks about the Islamic world. And of course, he has the point. Racism, as we know it, is rife in the West. Uh, and Edward Saiz criticizes the and the Western, Western academics and literary works for how they use uh, crude generalizations about Orientals and, and Muslims in particular, and how they use a completely unempirical method. No, how they use a completely unempirical method. <laughs> and he criticizes the arrogant colonial and imperialist attitude uh, of, you know, of civilizing, so to say, the backward nations. And these are the same racist ideas that we hear today in, te in the television and also some places in academia. Uh, like uh, the idea of the clash of civilizations, which was developed by Samuel P. Huntington in 1992, which claimed that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there, there was a beginning of a new era of clash of civilizations and cultures. Uh, in other words, the, the clash of the Christian world with other religions and in particular with Islam. In this vein, Muslims are portrayed as primitive peoples who desire more than anything a feudal type of society, who, uh, who want to be ruled by heavy-handed strongmen and, and religious zealots. 
And Edward Said points out the extreme prejudices and generalizations that these people put forward. But he fails to draw any of the conclusions. Because then Said goes on to draw the, the broadest generalizing brush possible. For, for example, he says about the West, uh, and I'll, I'll quote here, uh, for any European during the 19th century, in what he could say about the Orient, was consequently a racist and imperialist and, a, and almost totally ethnocentric. He basically paint, portrays the whole of the West, including the working class, as one united reactionary cultural bloc. And in fact, he traces the history of this block all the way to the time of Homer, 3,000 years ago. But he never served any real evidence uh, to back up these claims, except, uh, uh, except for, the, for his interpretation of a series of literary works. In fact, he basically admits in his introduction that the field he's examining is too vast for a systematic analysis. And, he, and instead, he says that his method is to rely on a set of historical generalizations he makes, that he makes in the introduction. So instead of having a scientific approach of studying a wide variety of material and, and, drawing, and drawing general conclusions upon, upon, these, uh, st- uh, upon studying, studying these, uh, he makes a series of baseless general assumptions and then spends the entire book trying to find literary texts to prove these. And that is, in general, the, the approach of the post-colonialists. In fact, all postmodernists to take their starting point in their own immediate personal situation uh, and to extrapolate this over the rest of the world to the rest of the world. Uh, Edward Said was a literary critic, so he makes the literary world world the defining element in world history. Now, Said spends his whole book basically listing how Western authors have uh, have an unscientific method and that they reduce the Arabs to nothing but Muslims. But he does the exact same thing himself. In the whole book, I think it's more than 300 pages, there's not one, uh, there's no concrete examples or descriptions about Middle Eastern people. Nothing about class and, and nothing about real culture. The Oriental person is reduced to nothing but a Muslim. In fact, in, in my notes as I was reading it, I, I, I just wrote, he's obsessed with Islam. And, and, and it's funny because that's the general theme of post-colonialism to boil down the struggle against racism and imperialism to, to nothing but the defense of religion, or rather the defense of non-Western religions against Western cultural onslaught. In other words, clash of civilizations, which, if you remember, is the main theory of Western imperialism today. And this is the theme we'll meet again and again, that the post-colonialists end up with all of the conclusions of the imperialists. Although often it's actually even far uh, cruder even than how the bourgeois represent them or present them. Sorry. Uh, for the post-colonialist, uh, culture, first of all, is the driving force of history. It is the racist culture in Western academia, at what Saiz said, uh, and literature, which, is the co- which causes Western imperialism. For yeah, instance... For instance, Edward Said uh, blames the Gulf, the first Gulf War in 1991, on people like Bernard Lewis and Fuad Ajami, who were influential bourgeois historians and also advisors of George Bush uh, uh, Senior at that particular time. Because as Said writes, they convinced him of the phenomenon such as the Arab mind and centuries-old Islamic decline that only American power could reverse. In other words, what he's basically saying is that if he was the advisor to George Bush, if he was a top academic, 
the war, the war would never have happened. Uh, but today, post-colonialism is the top political theory being taught in the universities in the West. You, you, all, you, hardly, you can hardly avoid reading Orientalism, uh, his book, even if you wanted to. But things have not gotten any better in terms of racism and imperialism. Imperialism is not the result of individ- the individual will of evil men or advisors. Marx already explained in the Communist Manifesto how capital, once having saturate, saturated the home market, is forced to go beyond its borders due to its own inherent contradictions and spread all over the world. Uh, and that is the fundamental basis of imperialism and colonialism under capitalism. And racism is the, is the political side of this process. On the one hand, the bourgeois justify their imperialism with racism, but by whipping up nationalist hysteria, they also divide the working class along national lines. And, and rally a layer of the, of the workers behind the ruling class. Marx once famously wrote about uh, British colonialism in, uh, in, in Ireland. Um, he says, For a long time I believed that it would be possible to overthrow the Irish regime by, by, by the working class taking power. But then he goes on to say, The English working class, he says, I, I've changed my mind. The English working class will never accomplish anything before it has gotten, written, has gotten rid of Ireland which was a colony. Yes, racism is a, is a very hard thing to endure if you're on the receiving end of it. Uh, but more than anything, it is, it is a weapon against the workers of the oppressing nation. It is the attempt of the bourgeois to try to convince the workers of the idea that, 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 uh, th- that they have more in common with their own ruling class than with the rest of the workers around the world. Now, the post-colonialists basically repeat the same thing, just to the, to the masses in their own countries. And therefore, they rule out any united international struggle against imperialism whatsoever. And in reality, these are the, the prejudices of the petty bourgeois nationalists of the oppressed nations, which has nothing whatsoever to do with the, with the outlook of the working class, which is instinctively uh, internationalist. L- look at the Arab Revolution. On the one hand, you ha- on the one side, you had the whole world working class cheering on the Arab uh, youth and workers and poor. Even in Israel, where we were told that nothing like this could ever happen, in some of the mass protests, there were signs of solidarity with the Arab masses. People were carrying signs saying, walk like an Egyptian, fight like an Egyptian. And on the other side, you had all the respectable democratic bourgeois rulers in the West who always decry the inherent undemocratic primitive nature of the Arabs. And along with them, the Israeli ruling class, all all lining up behind the Arab dictators. The Saudi king was insisting that Barack Obama intervene militarily to save uh, Mubarak in Egypt. But Obama couldn't enlarge, mainly in fact, because of the enormous political impact it would have in the U.S. itself, where people were, 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 solid, were showing solidarity with the Egyptian revolution. And, uh, and, and the ideas such as clash of civilizations are aimed at fighting this working class solidarity. That's the role of racism. But instead of exposing this, the post-colonialists emphasize, emphasize these exact same theories and try to prove them philosophically. They repeat the bourgeois idea that the European culture is exceptional and that it is uh, prone to imperialism. The only difference is that they don't present it as a good thing. But if that's true, where does this imperialist culture come from? All, all we're left to assume is that it's some sort of genetic or geographic defect in Europe which again, we can only assume being the work of some sort of divine being. 20 minutes gone. Please slow down for translation. 
Okay, which makes uh, Europeans different from others. Uh, uh, the idea is that that culture basically is the driving force of history, which is a which is a completely idealist thought. And by idealism, I mean the the philosophical notion that our ideas are the primary element, and that material reality is some sort of reflection of our ideas. In the end, all sorts of idealism end up in 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 some sort of some kind of religious thinking. But we, as Marxists, believe that there's only one material world, and that our ideas are a reflection of this material world and a reflection of our material conditions, and that our ideas are a reflection of this material world and and of our material conditions. Uh, of course, uh, we are not crude economic determinists or fatalists who argue that everything is a, is an immediate reflection of simple economic factors or that everything has been decided in advance. Yes, culture, art, ideas, and traditions play a huge role in society. Marx said that the traditions weigh like a mountain of the, on the back of the working class. Yes, but in the final analysis, these ideas and these, uh, these, uh, this, these cultures and traditions are determined by material reality by the class struggle and the development of the productive forces in our society. Take, for instance, the English Revolution. And I recommend everyone to watch the series on the English Revolution that we're publishing on Marxist.com at the moment. And there we see a whole series of religious sects in, in this revolutionary struggle. I can't hear the translation. Uh, I said there we see a whole series of religious sects in the, in the struggle who, uh, it, all of them, in fact, in words, fought for God the Almighty. And all of them were Christian. Hello? Can you hear me? Sorry, I'm just waiting for the translator for everyone out there. I said, in words, all of these groups fought for God the Almighty, even the royalists. But in reality, each sect and each religious branch was, was uh, representing a specific class interests. In fact, all philosophies and, and, and philosophical trends throughout history represent the outlook of a particular class or layer in society. Uh, now, Edward Said has a, has a particularly revealing quote uh, on his idealism. He says that the European and American interests in the Orient, i.e. in the oppressed uh, colonized nations, were created by culture, and I quote, that acted dynamically along with brute political, economic, and military rationales to make the Orient the varied and complicated place that it is that it obviously was in the field I called Orientalism. So it was this uh, racist Western culture, in other words, which not only defined the interests of the West, but also created the Orient, which exists primarily in the academic field of Orientalism itself. And this is, this is obviously nonsense. But what is the practical consequences of this? It is that the way to fight imperialism is to change the professors and the middle, uh, in the Med Middle East faculties and the universities in the West and replace them by some, some, someone non-Western, which is something that fitted very nicely with Said's career ambitions. And this is something we see taken up by the activists who try to apply post-colonial thought. There's a movement in Western universities called Decolonize the Curriculum. And, and these people object to, to the imperialist propaganda in the universities And yes, there is plenty of imperialist whitewashing of history there. But, but their solution is to demand that the present texts in the curriculum are replaced by texts by non-white authors. Uh, and many people, uh, obviously, in this movement start out uh, as genuinely radical youth who want to fight racism. But what they essentially end up saying is uh, that is not the content of the ideas that we're taught, which defines whether they're good or bad, or true or wrong or false, 
but the skin color or ethnicity of the people stating these ideas. And this is a wholly racist nation, uh, notion. And what it reflects, not in these people, but in the academics who make up these ideas, is not the desire to fight racism or capitalism, because it doesn't. In fact, post-colonialism opposes any attempt at touching private property or class rule. What it reflects is a desire of the petty bourgeois of the oppressed layers to be allowed into the top echelons of academia. 30 minutes gone, Hamid. As I said before, all philosophical trends in the last instance reflect the, the, the position and an outlook of a particular class in society. And that's clear throughout the writings of, of, the, of the post-colonialists, that they, that they uh, represent the, 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 the enraged petty bourgeois of the, of the uh, oppressed nations, or a layer of them. Now, uh, this idea I explained before, that, uh, that, culture, that culture and academia somehow creates and determines the ex-colonial world, is quite widespread in post-colonial thought. But in reality, it boils down to a sort of subjective, a subjectivist idealism, which is a philosophical trend which claims that, the, that the, which says that the idea of all, that all knowledge basically is subjective and that there's no objective truth. But the post-colonialists don't want to admit this. Uh, and, and following the, the Foucault and the, um, the post-structuralists or the, you know, the, the French postmodernists of the 80s, they try to cover up this subjectivism by, so to say, collectivizing it. So instead of saying that individuals are unable to know nature and society, they say that it's Eurocentric culture, which is incapable of knowing other cultures and vice versa. But then we have to ask, where does the line go? Where do you stop understanding the other side? Is it the Bosphorus, the Ural Mountains, or the borders of the European Union? And what about the different cultures inside the West? Can, can the French understand Britain? Or the different cultures, the different cities and neighborhoods? And you can go on. But you inevitably end up with a subjectivist philosophy, which is the foundation of all postmodernist thinking. But, but the thing is that the logic of, of uh, subjectivism in, inevitably le leads to uh, what's called solipsism, which is the idea that since all knowledge is subjective, we cannot prove the existence of anyone beside ourselves. And hence, essentially, we're trapped within the lonely universe of our own mind. Of course, the question then comes, if that is so, why bother proving this to everyone else? How can the post-colonialists analyze the West or write books for a Western audience who clearly doesn't understand them and they don't understand the West? How can they do this if there is an unbridgeable gap between Euro the Eurocentric world and the rest of the world? And in fact, we can turn it around because most of these people have spent their whole lives in top academic institutions in the West, coming from very rich families, by the way. Um, so they would basically be Eurocentric, wouldn't they? And then they couldn't possibly comment on the so-called Orient. A another idea that the post-colonialists are obsessed with is the idea of uh, difference. And here we really begin to see the, the, the really reactionary nature of these ideas. I'm going to talk about, uh, about one of these guys, Dipesh, uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti, who's one of the biggest names in, in post-colonial theory at the moment, in the past 10 years maybe. And you have to forgive me for the very obscure language, but I, I, I couldn't possibly say what I'm about to say without at least giving you a little bit of a, a taste for what he's actually writing himself, because you wouldn't believe me. Now, Chakrabarti criticizes Marxism for not considering what he calls difference and responsibility to the plurality of the world. What does he mean by difference? He means that the laws of nature and society do not apply everywhere and to everyone. 
Uh, I'm going to quote here. I hope the translators have gotten the quotes. I sent them to them in advance. Uh, but forgive me for, 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 for this quote, <laughs> for reading it. Sorry. Although this one is not so bad. He says, for most Hindus, God's spirits and the so-called, so-called supernatural have a certain reality. They are as real as ideology is. That is to say, after Zizek, that they are embedded in practices. And then he ends with the, with the, uh, crown jewel or what do you say cherry on the cake the secular calendar is only one of the many time worlds that we travel so he's basically saying that for hindus there is a different time world inhabited by gods and spirits and then now it gets really bad i'm very sorry about this in another place building on the same idea he says one historicizes only insofar as one belongs to a mode of being in the world that is aligned with the principle of disenchantment of the universe. 40 minutes gone, Hamid. Which underlies knowledge in the social sciences, and I distinguish knowledge from practice. And then he says, but disenchantment is not the only principle by which we world the earth. I'm reading this correctly, if you're wondering. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm listening to the Spanish translation trying to translate worlding, worlding the earth. Um, then he says, the supernatural can inhabit the world in these other modes of worlding and not always as a problem or result of conscious belief or, or ideas. For the people listening in on Spanish, I can confirm that this translation was absolutely correct. If you didn't understand it, it's not the, the fault of the translator. But I'll translate for you what he means, really, into a real language. It's by, his, by, by historicizing, basically, he means to recognize development and progress in nature and history by historic. Uh -huh. And what he's saying about this is that development and its scientific approach only applies for those of us who live in a disenchanted world. Poor us. Huh? The magic has been taken out of our world. That's what it means to be disenchanted. And now we're forced to live with, develop with, de with development and the laws of nature. But there are other worlds which are still magical, And uh, it appears that Dipesh Chakrabarti is a traveler between these worlds. Maybe he's writing a travel guide. Now, this is one of the most prominent academics in the world. And he's spewing this reactionary poison into the ears of thousands of young people. He's promoted all over the world in universities and academia and so on. But uh, it, this might sound like a harmless uh, quote, but, the, but he goes further. Because it's not only that he doesn't recognize law, that lawfulness applies everywhere. He thinks that the whole idea of lawfulness is oppressive as a, com as a concept. Everything is possible, these people say, in, in these magical worlds. Everything is possible. Nothing is necessary. But if that was the case, how would you ever be able to plan anything or act out any of your wishes and desires? Uh, if gravity wasn't a, a force of nature, uh, how would we be able to orientate ourselves? One day we walk off a cliff and then continue uh, into the air above the abyss. The next day we might fall down and die, or maybe we might fall up into space. Of course, it's all nonsense. The fact is that necessity and freedom go together. There can be no freedom without not lawfulness in nature. The better we understand the laws of nature, the better we can use them to, to, to reach our aims and aspirations. And when we talk about progress in history, we, we mean, of course, the development of the productive forces, the, the development of the tools of production and of science, which increases the domination of humanity over nature, which in turn opens the path for the liberation of humanity. And that is precisely what uh, uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti is against. 
this idea is the notion of progress that he's arguing against, which he thinks is oppressive, is an oppressive concept altogether. Is an, is an elitist contest, uh, concept, sorry. And here, he, what he's doing actually is, is attacking Marxism and class struggle. Uh, he claims that India, for instance, uh, that in India, the struggle is not along class lines, but along tribal and religious lines. That's, yeah, go ahead. And to back this up, uh, he, he, he talks about how workers and peasants in India use religious symbols in their rights, uh, and, and rights in their struggles, which is natural because they're religious people, most of them. But it doesn't mean that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that they, they, their actions do not have a class nature. Now, one of Chakrabarti's colleagues called uh, Ranajit Guha, he uh, has written a book where he traces the history of peasant struggles in British colonial India. It's a quite, quite a famous book in these circles. And one of the examples in this book is, uh, is an episode with a series of poor Muslims in, uh, Muslim peasants in Bengal who have a, who've been brutally oppressed by the landlord who happens to be a Hindu Brahmin, an upper caste uh, Hindu landlord. And the, and the peasants, uh, uh, at, uh, basically at the night, I think, they take his cows and they, uh, they cut it in pieces and they desecrate the local Hindu temple with, with his cow like as a, as, a, as a sign of defiance. 50 minutes gone, Hamid. Now, now there are two, two trends in this uh, particular struggle. One is the class struggle, which is clear here, is poor peasants against a rich landlord. And one is the particular particular form of, that this struggle takes, which is uh, on, on religious lines. But what Guha and, and Chakrabarti defend uh, is, uh, sorry, let me just say, um, the, the, these religious lines, obviously, they are uh, the weakness of the movement, because in that way, they cannot connect with other poor peasants who are Hindus. But what, what Guha and Chakrabarti defend is not the class nature of these uprisings, but the religious nature, which they, which they actually raise to a principle. And in fact, they go as far as saying that this is somehow the Indian form of modernity. That is, they raise this type of struggle on religious lines to a, to a political principle. But what would it mean in practical terms if you put the desecration of cows in Hindu temples on the program of a political party? Will it achieve liberation for the poor Indian peasants? No, it's, it's, it's a recipe for sectarianism. But they go even further. They claim that the, that the notion of class struggle socialism, and even national liberation itself are elitist and oppressive notions in themselves because they impose on the religious and tribal nature of Indian society. And of course, all of these ideas align perfectly with the religious zealots in, in India and everywhere else. Now, I have another quote by, by Chakrabarti. This one is uh, maybe a little bit more understandable. He uh, says, For however cynical one may be in one's analysis of the of the uh, of the re- reasons and he puts reasons in quotation marks uh, of the reasons why the hindu political parties might want to use the hindu card and reason in quotation marks uh, one still has to ask the question about the many different meanings that divine figures such as god king rama assumes in our negotiations with with modernity you have to see this in a context to make sense but i'll translate it for you what is, he's talking about the Hindutva movement, the, um, the, which is a reactionary Hindu fundamentalist movement, Hindutva. Uh, and uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, but anyway. Um, but the, the movement was, was not, he said, they, they say basically that the movement is not the result of the betrayal of the Indian Revolution by Congress or by the Stalinists, but that it's a real religious movement based on the inherent nature of Indians. In other words, that, that the Indian masses are 
rejecting class struggle and nationalism and going to the true, true, uh, um, how do you say, natural kind of a place to be, a political home. Of course, political is oppressive and elitist, so we wouldn't call it that either. And this is not only exactly what the religious fundamentalists say, it is exactly, although put a bit more crudely, what the imperialist chauvinists say. And, and he goes on. Uh, and, and, I, and I quote here, uh, sorry again for, for the translate, translators. Uh, the bringing together of these different time worlds in the construction of a modern public life in India has always had something to do with all the major crises uh, of modern India. What does he mean by that? That it is the clash of modernity, i.e., well, development, uh, advanced capitalism or developed civilization, bourgeois civilization, and traditional time or traditional worlds, which is the cause behind the Hindutva movement, uh, or actually is the cause behind all the major social crises in India, in modern India. Uh, and, uh, and basically, what, what is the conclusion of this? That what is necessary is to go back in time before capitalism ruined the time worlds of India with, with its elitist notions of democracy and science and desire for higher living standards. Of course, that's not really what capitalism brought to India, but that is, that is basically what he is saying. I'll get back to that. Um, that is basically what post-colonialism boils down to. It's a hostility towards science. It's a hostility to class struggle. And it's a fetishizing of backwardness and religion. And what it reflects is the total decay of bourgeois nationalism in the oppressed nations. And it is spitting in the face of the hundreds of millions of workers and, and peasants and poor who've launched wave after wave of revolutionary struggles in the colonial world. Not for a return to some pre-capitalist era, which, by the way, was not that uh, hunky-dory either, but for, for, but for national liberation, for democracy, and, and for a way out of the barbarism of real imperialist oppression. 60 minutes gone, Hamid. And these people, they don't even talk about... In none of these books, you talk about the real oppression, the violent oppression, uh, imperialist oppression that, uh, that the imperialists brought to these countries. They talk about the, uh, the enlightenment, uh, scientific ideas, notions of progress, class struggle. This is what they, they point out is the reactionary part of all of this. And capitalism, capitalism came to the world in Europe uh, at first, fighting against backwardness and mysticism and obscurantism originally. And it played an incredibly progressive role. It, 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 uh, uh, it, uh, it swept away the complex web of classes and layers which were holding society back. It, it destroyed the previous land relations. It freed the peasants. It abolished the landlord class. It united whole nations and destroyed uh, feudal society with this myriad of small statelets. And, and, uh, and of course, these were all huge steps forward for humanity. But in, his, in the face of imperialism, capitalism turns into its opposite. And it is a complete lie to say, as the post-colonialists do, that capitalism was trying to modernize the oppressed nations. Attempting push society forward in revolutionary struggle, out of the out of barbarism and backwardness. But and and the and the had lived in society, could only run on what on the sectarians and the tribal people. Yeah, tribalism, not the tribal people. Sorry, um, and uh, um, 
and, and these were the ones who were who were pushing for sectarianism and 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 pushing for 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 a religious way out of uh, uh, to push the struggles into a religious direction. And the sectarians, we have to be clear: the, the, the religious sectarians are absolute enemies of the working class and the poor. But you often hear post-colonialist uh, post-colonial uh, thinkers defend these people. But they were allied with the imperialists in trying to sabotage any attempt at modernizing society throughout the history of, of all of the col- uh, colonized uh, nations and the oppressed nations. I don't, I can't hear the translation. Oh yeah, the sectarians were were allied with the imperialists. They had an alliance to sabotage an attempt at uh, any attempt at uh, dividing, uh, sorry, modernizing society. Now I'm getting confused. <laughs> yes. And they and they uh, sabotaged uh, again together the two of them sabotaged any attempt of achieving bourgeois democracy. It was the British who who time and time again leaned on sectarianism to divide and rule India, which ended in the in the in the in the criminal partition of India, which led to millions of deaths. It was the British and U.S. imperialists who who poured billions of dollars and pounds into into maintaining Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East for decades to this day. Saudi Arabia would not exist a single day if it wasn't for the support of the imperialists. Al-Qaeda wouldn't e- exist a single day if it wasn't for the support of imperialists throughout, throughout time. Even the Islamic State wouldn't exist if it wasn't for, 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 the, for the Western imperialists. And also in Africa, the, 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 the different Western powers have, have been leaning on tribalism all over Africa in order to defend their privileges and continue the, the, the plunder of the continent. And the and the, uh, the 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 post-colonialists are extremely dishonest, I would say, and ignore all of this. And if they mention it, they draw no conclusions. It's just like a footnote. Um, you didn't uh, translate the last part. Uh, if they if they mention it, it's only as a footnote, as a as a side comment. Uh, and instead, um, instead what they, what they do is that they attack what was progressive in early capitalism, which of course capitalism is not able to offer anymore. And if you notice, in all of these basic ideas put forward by the post-colonials, they fully align with the ideas promoted by the imperialists, rather the ideas promoted and acted out by the imperialists. Um, and, and in reality, they don't fight imperialism and capitalism at all. Their real struggle is against Marxism and the working class. And that's why the bourgeois have no problem with promoting them around the world. In the education system, where, where they're one of the dominant, if not the dominant trend, and here they play the role of capturing uh, radical young people who are looking for a way out of the dead end of capitalism. Now, sometimes I hear some people say, we shouldn't dismiss all of these theories, just dismiss them blanket. You know, maybe there's something we can use, we can learn something. But I strongly agree, disagree with this idea. Uh, we, we, we need, as Marxists, we need to wage a determined struggle against these ideas. Because the post-colonial ideas, colonialist ideas are reactionary from top to bottom and whatever you can learn from them i'll tell you if you get a little bit educated you get far more miseducated and uh, and if you learn anything you would learn a thousand times the same thing a thousand times better and clearer from the writings of marx engels lenin and trotsky and what these guys represent is is a disguised counter-revolution in the universities and the schools 70 minutes gone and our tech yeah sorry and our task is to expose these ideas one by one and to win over the youth to the only ideas which are really able to defeat imperialism and racism, which are the ideas of Marxism. 
in, 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 look, in India, South Africa, throughout the Middle East, formal liberation from imperialism has been achieved. But what has changed for the masses after the skin color of their rulers changed? Their living standards continue to decline. Corruption and nepotism are rife. And the imperialists still dominate them via the banks and the world market. Of course, with, with the help of the local capitalists who have, who have a domestic skin color, who have a domestic skin color. On a capitalist basis, there's no way out for the masses. And in fact, the struggle against imperialism and, and the struggle against capitalism are the same. And I'll tell you what, a, a victory against imperialism in any of the oppressed countries would be a victory for the working class in the advanced capitalist countries because the enemy is the same and the other way around. A, re a revolution in any of the advanced capitalist countries would weaken imperialism in, in, the, in the oppressed nations. Capitalism is, in, is international and it's built an international working class. Uh, and the workers have no nations. Workers from all countries have far more in common with each other than any of their rulers. And that's what we stand for. And that's what we have to raise. Against racism and nationalism, we raise the banner of internationalism. Against fundamentalism and sectarianism, we, we, we put forward the ideas of class struggle. And against capitalism and imperialism, we stand for socialism, which is the only way to liberate all of humanity from the barbarism and decay of class society. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hamid, for that excellent, excellent talk. Um, okay, now, before we go to the break, I'd like to repeat an announcement that should have been made in the earlier sessions. Uh, on the 14th of July, Comrade Amin from the Pakistani section of the IMT was abducted from his home. He was abducted by a paramilitary group in Pakistan called the Rangers. In many cases, victims of this group have been tortured and many have lost their lives. So we would like to appeal to all of those watching to hold protests against these crimes of the Pakistani state. You can write letters or emails to the Pakistani embassies in different countries. And you can do this in a personal capacity or on, the behalf, or on behalf of your organization. Uh, a video and an article have been published on the Marxist.com website. And this can be posted on social media. We have some hashtags, which are Release Amin and Stop State Abductions in Pakistan. Now, we will be having a break now. We will break uh, until uh, 7.15 UK time. That's uh, 25 minutes. And after the break, the first comrade to speak will be Daniel Morley and followed by Zain or Abedin. So just to remind the comrades, we will be beginning again at uh, 15 minutes past seven uh, UK time. That's in 25 minutes. Thank you. Okay, welcome back, comrades. We will now have the discussion for 75 minutes, including translation. First speaking will be Daniel Morley from the British section of the International Marxist Tendency, and he will be followed by Zain or Abedin from the Pakistani section. When you're ready, Daniel. Okay. <clears throat> I've often thought that the arguments put forward regarding racism um, from people influenced by post-colonialism and post-modernism have implied within them a... Oh, yeah, sorry. Stop the translation. Uh, an implication that, for example, black people are essentially all the same. A simple example of this would be um, a lot of people from this kind of petty bourgeois politics would, um, would be very offended 
if a white person were to disagree with a black person on racism. The mere fact that this person is white and the other person is black, it, it sort of makes the whole argument um, invalid and the, the white person should just listen to the black person, basically. That's the position. But obviously, not all black people agree on on a whole on all questions but even specifically on the question of racism they don't all agree actually in my old workplace i worked with um a black guy who said that the the reason that black men had problems in the uk is that they were lazy and he was saying this to me so i disagreed with him obviously there's plenty of other black people that would also disagree with him and, and therefore would to some degree agree with me in this question um so I think that the philosophically speaking, I mean, Hamid, Hamid has already very well explained the subjective idealist basis of this, that one person cannot know another person's position or, or experience. So I, I won't uh, explain any of that at all or, or add anything. But um, just on this, the, the conclusions from this, the sort of the similarities between it and far right positions has frequently been noted, actually, because the conclusion probably not intended by most people who put this forward but the inescapable conclusion is that different cultures and ethnicities should stay in their separate boxes and not really speak to each other or influence one another now because we have discussed this subject of idealism in postmodernism and in post-colonial theory if i were to read the following quotation to you you could be forgiven for thinking it must be from a, a similar thinker, someone someone who is a, basically a postmodernist or postcolonialist. The quotation is as follows: "The thing, i.e., the material object, <clears throat> cannot be dealt with apart from the subject. A thing in itself, detached from reason, is even more of a non-thing than nothing. For understanding and reason alone create unity in diversity." They alone, therefore, engender the thing. Reason alone has the shaping power. Another statement from the same person. The value of science is not its truth. This, after all, is only symbolic. But its usefulness as a practical method and its... Sorry. Its value is in its usefulness as a practical method and its importance in shaping imagination and character. The author of these lines is actually Houston Stuart Chamberlain who was known as Hitler's John the Baptist. He was a British man, but he, he um, gave up his British citizenship and became a German because he considered Germany to be a more romantic and enchanted place, not so kind of destroyed by money and the um, horrors of modern capitalism. And he actually praised specifically the Indian tradition as being one based on myth and, and, and thought that Europe had lost its way with science. Of course, he thought that science was a Jewish thing. And this idea found its way into the Nazis in in terms of their denial of history and objective truth. According to Rauschning, who um, had several conversations with Himmler and uh, Hitler, Himmler said to him, this is the quotation, it does not matter one bit whether this or that is the real truth about the early history of the Germanic tribes. There is no reason why the party shouldn't stipulate a particular hypothesis, even if it contradicts scientific opinion. The important thing is to have such thoughts on this as will confirm our people in the national pride that it needs. The Nazi theorists, if you can call them that, specifically denied uh, the existence of history. 
because history apply, Im, implies objectivity and development, which, of course, they were against. They were against progress entirely. They thought that the there could be no history to a race because a race's own character is defined by its original formation and it stays that way forever. Ten minutes gone, Daniel. So the leading Nazi, Alfred Rosenberg, wrote the following. In essence, the first major mythical pinnacle of achievement achievement is no, not further consummated, but it simply assumes different forms. The value is perennial. Odin, as an eternal reflection of the primal powers of Nordic man, is as much alive today as 5,000 years ago. And also, I'm running out of time. I have some further quotations from Hitler, but basically he says the same thing. He says that history and truth, they don't really matter. It's willpower of the willpower of our great nation. That's that's what counts. And we can just make stuff up. Now, The argument I'm trying to make is obviously not that Edward Said is a fascist or that those you encounter on university campuses who use these ideas of fascists or becoming fascists. I don't think that's the case. But objectively, the ideas they put forward are reactionary. Uh, As Hamid says, it's basically a a repetition of reactionary imperialist ideas, but they simply say that the bad things you say about us are actually good. You know, the the colonial peoples are good. But they agree with the caricature of those people, basically, and with the division of people into these sort of timeless boxes. And what's particularly fascinating is to find that even in the deeper down questions of philosophy such as the nature of time and uh, of objective knowledge they basically agree and in fact even, even in the figure of heidegger who of course is a celebrated philosopher of postmodernists to a certain extent and also of course a very well-known nazi it won't surprise you to find out he also denied the possibility of objective knowledge and he detested society and thought that society was a, a, bur- a horrible burden on the individual. But he also specifically denied the existence of time. He said that time does not exist. It's just a, a figment of the imagination. Anyway, I'll leave it there. I think it's I've made my point. Thank you for that, Daniel. Okay, uh, so next we have Comrade Zain from Pakistan. And after that, we will have Fiona Lally from Britain. So, yeah. uh, Thank you, Jake. After an excellent lead-off from uh, Hamid, uh, I think uh, many points have been cleared about post-colonialism, that how reactionary uh, it is as a philosophy, if it is a philosophy. Mm, Apart the general hate from about Marxism and working class in general, apart the, the general hate towards Marxism and working class in general, they particularly criticize the Marx position uh, about uh, the role uh, the British uh, imperialism played in the Indian subcontinent. They accuse Marx of uh, being a racist or, uh, or, or uh, his analysis or his position on uh, uh, British India uh, is wrong. Capitalism didn't bring any progress uh, in the Indian subcontinent, but instead it had bring uh, death, misery and agony from millions of uh, Indian masses. But unlike bourgeois historians or post-colonial uh, uh, people, we as a Marxist see any historical uh, phenomena in its totality with all its contradictions. So in this reference, uh, the role of uh, British uh, imperialism, first in the form of British East India Company, 
then as uh, as a uh, first uh, in the form of british east india company uh, then uh, uh, later on uh, as a direct colony of british uh, imperialism had a dual character uh, we know that the, the all the policies of the company in british india in order to uh, 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 for their uh, uh, imperialist interest and for that they looted and plundered the uh, this uh, uh, indian subcontinent but side by side they also put an end the old archaic mode of production that is asiatic despotism old archaic mode of production that is asiatic despotism and introduced modern bourgeois relations in indian subcontinent in the words of in the words of marx england it is true in causing a social revolution in hindustan was actuated only by the violent interest and was stupid in her, her manner of enforcing them but that is not the question the question is can mankind fulfill its destiny without a fundamental revolution in the social state of asia if not whatever may have been the crimes of england she was the unconscious tool of tool of history in bringing about that revolution uh, here we can see the marx clearly putting the things the, as they were he is clearing uh, highlighting the uh, imperialist character of uh, east india company but side by side he is also uh, uh, explaining that that it, this is a step forward for million of people residing in that uh, area but uh, our post colonial friends uh, i think don't want to understand uh, that's a crystal clear position uh, and uh, and starting from this they associate all the crimes of stalinism the role the criminal role stalinist communist parties played in british india with the marxism and we have clearly seen that the capitalism had not been able to solve the burning issues facing millions of people yet only complicated and uh, uh, exaggerated these burning questions uh, uh, we can see that uh, still in indian subcontinent we can find ancient tribes and remains of asiatic despotism to some extent but what these guys fail to understand that it is the capitalism and bourgeois relations which now underlines every question and every aspect of life whether it is the question of imperialism or national question caste question and so on but these guys doesn't provide any solution about these burning problems all the provide is that masses should decolonize their minds from all these western ideas and in the end the so so called modernist or post modernist in fact are took refuge in the backwardness and start eulogizing the old archaic mode of production that capitalism put an end moreover uh, instead of uh, uh, asking for the unity of action against all these uh, problems and burning issues what they offer is that that every layer or every oppressed community should lead their own fight like i will give an a recent example in the recent movement against uh, anti citizenship amendment bill a uh, movement against citizenship amendment bill and minutes gone that uh, that was uh, clearly Uh, uh, arising out of the uh, reactionary agenda of uh, Modi regime to divide the working masses of India along the religious and sectarian lines. Uh, so, according to these guys, 
as this bill is only against uh, muslims in general so only muslims should uh, fight against uh, uh, this bill but they were clearly uh, unaware of the objective realities when the indian trade unions called for a general strike back in january and they also included in their program uh, 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 to uh, revoke this uh, uh, sectarian uh, citizenship amendment bill uh, in, uh, and that was and that was the largest uh, general strike uh, human uh, in the human history and cutting across all these uh, ethnic ethnic lines religious lines to 50 million workers in, in india strike against modi regime so we can clearly see that these so called modernist or post colonialists actually strengthening the hands of uh, uh, reactionary modi regime their agenda and the modi's agenda is the same that we should not let working masses unite against their common enemy That's that is indian concept. that is indian bourgeoisie and their western masters and imperialist institutions like imf and world bank but the working masses of indian subcontinent not only in india but also in pakistan bangladesh and beyond are ready to fight against uh, the reaction of this capitalism and uh, uh, in the coming period we will see the movements far greater than seen in the past in which indian masses or, or uh, correctly to say in the, the masses of indian subcontinent will join their hands to kick out capitalism and imperialism and uh, take the revenge of the crimes of the partition and will lay forward the basis of so- socialist federation of india as a spark of world socialist revolution long live the unity of world proletariat workers of the world unite thank you thanks very much that excellent intervention zain okay so if i could if i could bring in uh, fiona from britain now and after fiona will be ubaldo oropesa from mexico okay uh, fiona when you're ready thanks so i'm i'm going to talk about decolonizing the curriculum which is a popular campaign in universities across the UK and the US mainly there are many issues but in the interest of time i'm only going to deal with one that is the accusation of eurocentrism so proponents of the campaign say that our curriculum is dominated by white male authors typically from europe and it is true that they are dominated in this way and as a result they say that the perspectives and ideas of the global south are ignored but they also campaign against what they call whiteness but they have no clear definition of this in general i would say it's seen as a manifestation of power that pervades all aspects of society and their proof of this is in the language and the books of the ruling class hamid has already explained and shown how said does this with literature in particular but in reality in their campaign against whiteness what they end up doing is just describing racism however they have no scientific understanding of where racism comes from so they just assert its existence and all this does is confuse people once you detach oppression from its material basis you remove our ability to fight it in some cases they understand racism as a product of history and even capitalism but they do not understand the laws that drive history that the history of all hitherto existing societies the history of class struggle and this is an important difference 
because in doing this, they transform racism, a real material phenomenon, into a battle of ideas. Now, ideas are, of course, important, but what is more important is the source of those ideas. Ideas do not hang unsupported in the air. So I'd say that white supremacy and whiteness, by which they mean racism, are a part of class society. And as Marxists, we must be concrete in our language and our tactics. Otherwise, the struggle appears to be against white people in general, rather than the exploitation and oppression of the ruling class specifically. White supremacy and racism comes from capitalism and the legacy of slavery, colonialism and imperialism. And it is those systems that must be fought. In fact, it is the same system, class society, and this is not interchangeable with whiteness. By calling it whiteness, they're confusing the issue. Now, I'd say that it's a good sign that young people are rejecting what they are taught in universities. I mean that in terms of the people who, you know, support the campaign to decolonize their curriculum. But we must demand more than this. Above all, I would say we cannot base the search for good ideas on the colour of the skin of the author. And this is one of the demands of the campaign, that there are more black and brown authors on the curriculum. In doing so, what this campaign does is essentially highlight the nature of education under capitalism, which we understand as a tool to disseminate the ideology of the ruling class into society. And I think there's a huge number of young radicalized people who are taken in by the radical sounding rhetoric of these ideas. But all these, what these ideas do is channel them down the path of identity politics, which is harmless for the capitalist system. Now, it's absolutely true that higher education generally and elitist institutions such as Oxford and Cambridge exclude authors and texts from the global south. However, we would add that the issue is not just the race of the authors on the reading lists, but also their class perspective. For example, we must raise the question, how is the curriculum set and in whose interests? Now, education has always been organised in the interests of the ruling class. The truth about capitalism and its roots in slavery and colonialism will therefore rarely be taught. The history we are taught is overwhelmingly that which is considered acceptable from the point of view of the establishment. But as we heard from Hamid's lead-off, there are plenty of black and brown petty bourgeois authors who would not tell the truth, who would speak, sorry, who would speak from the perspective of their own ruling class. And we know this because they do so in their own countries. So true decolonization would involve removing the class barriers that prevent the overwhelming majority of the world from accessing higher education. And this can only be achieved as part of the socialist transformation of society internationally through the expropriation of the capitalist class. Ten minutes gone. A democratic curriculum is dependent on the needs of society as a whole. And that is how it should be organised. That is how we can determine what really are the best ideas. So the fight against racism in academia isn't an isolated one. And, it, sorry, and it's part of the wider fight against racism, which is fundamentally done through the class struggle. 
and we can't settle for simply changing our reading lists. But beyond this, there's a there's a quote by um, Stephen Jay Gold, where he says um, he's less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. And this is what we have to remember in all discussions about the nature of education under capitalism. Um, this is what we must remember in all discussions concerning the nature of education under capitalism, which means we fight for real education, but that also includes housing, food and healthcare. And this is something that we can fight for now as part of the fight for socialism internationally. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Fiona. OK, so next I will be bringing in Ubaldo uh, from Mexico. Uh, and Ubaldo will be speaking in Spanish. Uh, and so all of those who are listening to the Spanish translation on the Discord should now turn down the volume on Discord and turn up the volume on uh, the main video. So, Ubaldo? Sí. When you're ready. Hola, buenas tardes. En diferentes universidades latinoamericanas. In various Latin American universities. Se habla de que ya no es correcto hablar del colonialismo there's talk about how it's no longer correct to speak about colonialism ya que hace mucho tiempo acabaron las colonias inglesas y francesas since the french and british colonies stopped existing long ago y al mismo tiempo niegan que haya un neocolonialismo un proceso en donde el imperialismo sigue teniendo el control de los países eh, de desarrollo desarrollado o excoloniales and at the same time, they deny the existence of a neo-colonialism, the measures by which the imperialist countries are able to maintain control of the underdeveloped or ex-colonial countries. Estos mismos académicos acusan a Marx de tener una visión eurocéntrica. These same academics accuse Marx of having a eurocentric vision. Y nos ponen sobre la mesa que tenemos que aceptar las, las teorías postcoloniales. And they tell us that we have to accept the post-colonial theories. Que te plantean básicamente que el problema es una cultura heredada de la época colonial. Which put forward that the problem is basically one inherited from the colonial era. Eh, no son muy originales, la verdad. Lo que hacen es retomar eh, y desfigurar algunas teorías y pensadores latinoamericanos. And to be honest, they're not very original. What they do is take up and refigure some theories of uh, some Latin American thinkers. Por ejemplo, retoman eh, a María Tegui, un marxista eh, latinoamericano que utilizó el marxismo para interpretar eh, la realidad que le tocó vivir. For example, they take the, the writings of María Tegui, a Latin American Marxist who applied the Marxist method to analyze the conditions he lived in. Particularmente en sus eh, siete ensayos de interpretación de la realidad peruana. Particularly in his collection of seven essays interpreting the reality in Peru. Él utiliza un conce concepto, eh, heterogeneidad estructural. He uses the concept of structural heterogeneity. Y desechan toda la teoría y todo lo que escribió María Tegui y solamente retoman este concepto. And they throw out all the theory and the content that Mariategui wrote about, and they just hold on to this one concept. 
y lo tratan de utilizar diciendo que es una crítica al eurocentrismo marxista. And they try to make use of this concept to say it is um, uh, of eurocentric Marxism. María Tegui en este escrito explica la composición de un de un país de capitalismo dependiente. In his writing, in one of his writings, María Tegui uh, analyzes the composition of a of an under of a of an oppressed capitalist uh, of a dependent capitalism. En donde se articulan diferentes formas de producción, modos de producción. Yes, modes of production coexist. Y diferentes eh, aspectos latinoamericanos, como es el trabajo comunitario. And various Latin American aspects, such as community labor. Eh, o la pequeña producción semifeudal que existía. Or the small-scale feudal production, which was still in existence. Además que incorpora eh, un lenguaje pues latino, como utilizar indios, mestizos, criollos, todas estas castas que existían en ese momento. And it also incorporates uh, a Latin American language, talking about Indians, mestizos, creoles. María Tegui lo que hace es utilizar el marxismo para explicar la realidad. Sin what embargo... Mariategui, what María Tegui does is to apply Marxism in order to explain reality, however... Sin embargo, lo que hace el, 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 la, teo, la teoría posmoderna es tratar de enfrentar toda la toda su teoría general de María Tegui eh, explicando o utilizando solamente el concepto ya ya mencionado. But what the postmodernist theory tries to do is to confront all the writings of María Tegui focusing exclusively on this one theory. También tratan de utilizar la teoría de la dependencia que esta plantea eh, que el desarrollo y, subdes y subdesarrollo de los países son dos caras de la misma moneda. They also, uh, there's also the writing on dependence, the theory of dependence, which talks about the uh, underdeveloped countries. Para decir que este pensamiento también es postcolonialista. And it tries to claim that all writing on underdeveloped countries is also postcolonialist. La teoría de la dependencia plantea que tanto el país eh, desarrollado, el país imperialista, como el país eh, capitalista atrasado mantienen una relación íntima. The theory of dependence uh, holds that both the developed capitalist country and the underdeveloped oppressed country maintain a, an intimate relationship. Y que el desarrollo de una eh, equivale al subdesarrollo de otro. And that the development of one is equal to the underdevelopment of the other. Eh, eh, la teoría plantea esta esta teoría postmoderna plantea que también es una heterogeneidad estructural. This postmodernist theory also puts forward the idea of, of structural heterogeneity. La teoría de la dependencia tiene varios errores, como por ejemplo no reconocer el papel de la burguesía nacional. This theory of dependence has a number of errors, for example, not recognizing the role of the national bourgeoisie. Sin embargo, los postcolonialistas la desvirtúan de manera total. However, the, the, the post-colonialists do not do it a justice in any sense. Y más recientemente, existe lo que se le llama la filosofía de la liberación. More recently, uh, we see the emergence of uh, what's called the philosophy of liberation. Estos abiertamente incorporan el posmodernismo, eh, la eh, teología de la liberación. These openly incorporate uh, postmodernism and liberation theology 
para tratar de re, eh, rehacer el discurso eh, anti-europeo. To try to remake the anti-European discourse. Su principal representante es Enrique Dussel. The, the, its main representative of this thought is Enrique Dussel. Um, hace, él hace una fuerte crítica al eurocentrismo. He, he makes a strong criticism uh, against eurocentrism. Y él se propone como objetivo tratar de desmontar los discursos de modernidad eh, como un fenómeno europeo. And he sets himself the objective of dismantling the discussion, the debate on, on modernity as a European phenomenon. Dice que es un mito el hecho de que Europa sea un punto, el punto del estudio sobre el conocimiento. He says that it's, it's a myth that Europe, Europe represents the high point on knowledge studies. Frente a esto, él dice que la modernidad es un acontecimiento mundial. Uh, he counterposes to this the idea that modernity is a, a global phenomenon. Y que la única forma de entender el desarrollo europeo es eh, también entender la historia de los otros, la otra edad. And the only way to understand European developments is to understand the, the others, the other ages. Él pone como ejemplo el proceso de sometimiento latinoamericano por eh, España. He gives as the example the, uh, the, the submission of Latin America under Spanish rule. Uh, y dice que la teoría de colonial o postcolonial refuerza la potencialidad rebelde de los pueblos latinoamericanos. And he says that the colonial or, or postcolonial theory reinforces the, the potential for rebellion of, of the American uh, Ya que exalta los antagonismos en, en los textos y en la cultura de los pueblos. Perdón. Ya que exalta eh, el significado el antagonismo, perdón, en los textos y en la cultura de los pueblos oprimidos. Since they exalt the antagonism of the, of the oppressed peoples. Yes, Pablo. Sí. Um, la filosofía de la liberación que plantea la emancipación de la otredad, es decir, del otro. The, the philosophy of liberation puts forward the idea of the, the, liberate, the emancipation of the other. Toda aquella teoría que no reconoce la subalternatividad, es decir, la, los sectores explotados o marginados. Any theory that doesn't recognize the, the, the marginalized and oppressed. No tiene ningún tipo de sentido ni aporte. Has no, has no sense or, or has, no, has, no, has nothing to offer. Él incluso llega a retomar algunos textos de Gua. He also takes some, some texts by Gua. Particularmente el libro Aspectos Elementales de la Insurgencia Campesina. In particular, the book Elemental Aspects of the Peasant Insurrection. Donde Gua critica a los movimientos que tienen un programa claro y escrito. Where Gua, this author, criticizes the, the clear aspects of the movement. Y dice que tal insistencia por la escritura denota prejuicios de las élites nacionales o extranjeras. And he says that this, this denotes prejudices from foreign authors. Así la, la filosofía de la liberación desecha cualquier pensamiento mínimamente coherente. In this way, liberation philosophy puts, throws aside any, any uh, coherent philosophy. Por ser este europeo o venir de las grandes urbes. If it comes from, from Europe. 
y se invita a ser sustituido por iniciativas, espontaneidad y sentimentalismo, aspectos morales. Dice que la tarea fundamental de, de, la, de la filosofía de la liberación es identificar la lógica de las distorsiones en la historia y en la cultura de los pueblos. It says that its objective, the objective of liberation philosophy, is to identify the source of the distortions in, in, in its history. Y como alternativa te, invite, te invita a reescribir la historia, ¿no? Como si este hecho significara la cuestión de la liberación. And as an alternative, it invites one to rewrite history as if this offered some alternative or, or, or liberation. Es decir, este, esta nueva historia lo que tiene que hacer es exaltar al subalterno como un eh, elemento no pasivo. That is to say, to make a new history which lifts up the oppressed. Eh, la filosofía de la liberación no toma en cuenta eh, nada sobre la situación del poder imperialista en la región. This liberation philosophy doesn't take into account the position of imperialist powers in the region. Rather, it invites us to create a new culture and a new literature. Como si la cultura um, se pudiese desarrollar de manera alterna, simplemente transformada por la educación. As if, an, uh, as if a culture could be transformed on demand simply by changing our methods of education. Te plantea que en vez de la lucha organizada y de masas, tiene que ser un cambio individual y per personal. It puts forward that instead of mass struggle, what we need is individual change, personal change. Por eso estas um, corrientes las tenemos que combatir no solamente en la teoría, sino también en la práctica. That's why we have to combat these tendencies, not only in theory, but also in practice. Eso es todo. Thank you very much, Ubaldo. Um, okay, so next up we have Zoe Milanovi from the Netherlands. So when you're ready, Zoe. Yes, thank you very much. Um, my contribution will be about the post-colonial idea that there is no unity between workers of the oppressor and oppressed nation. This is relevant because in the recent period in a lot of European countries, including the Netherlands, we see a big anti-racist movement coming up. Um, and um, this anti-racist movement, of course, uh, has recently been inspired by the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, but they also take on yeah, um, local issues. While we completely uh, are in stand in solidarity with the most of the young people who joined this, we have to be critical about some ideas of the, of the leadership. Leadership which has been influenced or is dominated by post-colonial ideas. We have to understand that this does not come out of nothing, but uh, is the result of a big, of a big vacuum, which, which has been caused by the degeneration of the leadership of the, of the labor movement in the last decades. And we could basically say a kind of loss of memory about joint struggles in the past. Post-colonial thinkers say basically there cannot be a joint struggle between um, yeah, workers of the, of the oppressors and of the oppressed. And if it takes place, then it is some kind of cynical communist plot. 
because it basically would entail white domination of the anti-colonial movement. Um, and then they say that yeah, the, the anti-racist activists would, should need to decolonize their minds. The idea behind it is uh, basically that white people are one re- reactionary block, which is for yeah, cultural reasons inherently yeah, um, reactionary and, and wants to colonize. And they're basically saying that yeah, white European workers and capitalists have have the same interest. Uh, maybe the workers want a bit higher higher wages um, and the capitalists want a bit lower, but their basic interests are the same. While post-colonial ideas might sound very radical, this completely false idea is basically the propaganda of the ruling class and the right-wing reformists, but turned inside out. These were the ideas uh, that were used by colonial powers like like the English and the French and the and the Dutch to to gain support for co- colonialism and imperialism and to tie the workers to the bosses. But um, yeah, in, with this, post colonialists uh, distort the real history of struggle of the yeah left wing of the workers movement. Uh, it is true that the right wing of the of the workers movement, uh, yeah, the right wing social democrats um, came to yeah, accept co- colonial colonialism uh, around 1900. Uh, but the the, the left wing, um, like people around Lenin, they they fought uh, against uh, these uh, these ideas within the Second International. Um, whatever higher living standards some workers would gain from uh, colonialism, this would be offset by the strengthening of the ruling classes of the colonial countries. The fall of the colonial empires uh, of of Britain, France, and the Netherlands would hasten the defeat of these imperialist ruling classes and hasten the revolution in Europe. Um, A a successful socialist revolution in Europe would in any any case improve the situation of the European working masses much more than any gains from colonialism uh, uh, could could give them in the short term. And it was not just in, in theory, but but in practice that these uh, ideas were uh, yeah uh, were built upon by uh, by revolutionaries. Um, <clears throat> for example, the uh, Dutch uh, socialist uh, Sneijfleet he uh, he set up the Indonesian Social Democratic Association, and uh, while the first members were Dutch, he insisted on focusing uh, on the recruitment of native uh, Indonesians. Um, and uh, after the Russian Revolution and the setting up of the, of the Comintern, the, this led to, um, to, to a tie and, and a collaboration between uh, Indonesian communism and, and Dutch communism. In the Indonesian uh, communist cadres would speak at workers' meetings in the Netherlands. Ten minutes gone. Uh, and there they would link the, the struggle for independence and um, yeah, and the other the, the struggle for better living conditions in Indonesia. They, they would link it to the workers' struggle in the Netherlands. And they did it, yeah, the Dutch and Indonesian communists did this with the explanation that the Indonesian masses and Dutch workers shared a common enemy. 
the Dutch capitalist class. The, the first uh, Indonesian uh, MP in the Netherlands, um, Rustam Effendi, uh, he went into parliament and made speeches uh, to, to defend these struggles in Indonesia. With a, with a slogan, Indonesia separate from Holland now, the Communist Party could influence a significant part of the Dutch uh, workers and move them away from the ruling class ideology. I don't have much time left, but I want to mention that there was a joint struggle in 1933 of uh, Dutch and Indonesian Navy Navy men against wage cuts. Uh, Unfortunately, the the role of Stalinism um, meant the the deterioration of these ties. Uh, In 1938 the Communist Party dropped the slogan of Indonesian independence. Uh, A a, a similar development was there in in Britain and France. And uh, it was basically Stalin that wanted to appease the bourgeois democratic countries uh, in order to gain a block against uh, the the fascist countries and Japan. Uh, in spite of Stalinist dis- distortions, uh, we, we still later see very impressive uh, examples, uh, including a one-day, yeah, basically, general strike in different Dutch cities uh, in September uh, 1946 uh, against sending troops to, to Indonesia for the, for the reconquest after the Second World War. Um, yeah, comrades, there, there are many examples like, like this in all former colonial uh, powers. And uh, the, the, the 20th century is full of examples of joint anti-racist struggles. It is our duty to act as the memory of the working class and the youth and to and point out these, uh, these examples. Uh, let's break uh, down all these distortions of these post-colonial uh, uh, ideologists. Uh, let's emphasize the proud history of united struggle. Please Let, and let's offer the, the youth a real Marxist alternative to, to fight oppression and exploitation to the end. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Zoe. Okay, so our next speaker will be Josh Holroyd from the British section. Thanks, Jack. So, when you're ready. Um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time trying to put post-colonialism in its historical context. And I, I think we can understand a lot about the nature of post-colonialism by looking at the colonial revolution, by looking at the colonial revolution. The, po- the period after the Second World War may have been a period of upswing and reforms in the imperialist countries, In the colonially oppressed world, it was a period of the revolutionary overthrow of colonial rule and the attempt to escape from the dead end of capitalism, from China to Cuba to Algeria, India, Vietnam, all over the world. This was one of the most inspiring periods in human history. And one remarkable feature of this period is that many regimes which explicitly set out to establish independent capitalist democracies in their countries ended up ended up expropriating the capitalists because they were tied by a thousand threads to imperialism. At the same time, those regimes were heavily influenced by Stalinist ideas at the time and clung to the anti-Marxist idea of socialism in one country. So you see various different types of national socialism popping up. You have Islamic socialism, 
Buddhist socialism, and all claimed that their culture had unique exceptions to the European model and therefore required a unique path to socialism, crucially within the bounds of a single nation state or cultural area. And this was a concession to petty bourgeois nationalism. But interestingly, the same idea can be seen even in those regimes which did not overthrow capitalism. To take one example, Kwame Nkrumah, who led Ghana to independence in 1957, he put forward a theory which was heavily influenced by Marxist-Leninism, but in combination with black nationalism, like the ideas of Marcus Garvey. He argued that prior to colonization, everywhere in Africa was a classless communistic society. And therefore, class struggle and revolution sorry, were not necessary for the building of socialism in Africa. And rather, reforms could achieve this once, the, once colonialism had been overthrown politically. So it's socialism without the expropriation of the capitalists and without a worker state. Now, the first thing that should be pointed out is that the idea that up until the arrival of the Europeans, Africa was in a permanent state of primitive communism, is not only historically false, but it's the same prejudice of the imperialists given a positive spin. More importantly, we can see here that African uniqueness is being used as an ideological cover for a reformist policy. This is not unique to Nkrumah. Don't forget it was Gaddafi and not Blair who first promoted the idea of a third way between capitalism and socialism. This halfway position between capitalism and socialism and the national particularism of all these regimes proved to be enormous, an enormous weakness against the onslaught of imperialism, exacerbated by the delay of the proletarian revolution in the, in the West and the failure of the, um, the Workers' Party in the West, Workers' Parties. Many of these regimes effectively assisted with the recolonization of their countries through privatization, for example, like Gaddafi in Libya, or they were overthrown by imperialist coups like Nkrumah. And the history of the so-called neoliberal period is exactly this, an onslaught of the World Bank, IMF and World Trade Organization against the reforms and trade barriers put up by the former colonial world. This is the prehistory of post-colonialism, if you like. The honest, sorry, the honest struggle to overthrow imperialism diverted along the lines of, of petty bourgeois nationalism, in which Stalinist ideas play a very important and pernicious role. But this isn't the real history of post-colonial theory. That comes later. The rise of post-colonial theory comes out of the retreat of the colonial revolution. It's the retreat of the colonial revolution and the overturning of many of the democratic and social gains of those revolutions. It is an ideology of pessimism and backsliding. Um, Zane has already spoken very well about India, it's worth pointing out that the Indian constitution refers to India as a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic. In reality, it's none of those things, except a republic, perhaps. But Nehru, in particular, was heavily influenced by the USSR and certain Stalinist ideas. And yet, in this socialist republic, capitalism was never overthrown. Zane has talked about uh, the conditions in India at this time. Suffice to say, not a single one of the problems of independence and even the democratic revolution have been solved. So interestingly, you start to see Stalinist academics in India abandoning the crude caricature of Marxism that they had previously held and flipping into reactionary idealism. Many post-colonial theorists have come from this background. 
They say, we tried working class struggle, we tried economic development, but culture, caste and religion won out. Therefore, in India, society is determined by religion, not class or the development of the productive forces. But the point is, the working class was prevented from coming to power by its leaders and by the, the failure of the, the Stalinist ideas and the, mass, uh, the leadership to the mass communist parties which existed in India. And the, the consequence of that was precisely the failure of economic development under Indian capitalism that has laid the basis for the preservation of caste and sectarian divisions. They actually turn the, most, oh, sorry, they turn the most reactionary aspects of Indian society into a permanent and necessary feature of Indian society, which is exactly what the British did. But in truth, the time of post-colonialism has passed. Now, all over the world, the masses are moving onto the road of revolution. The old Stalinist organizations are completely discredited for the most part. And the post-colonial prejudices that currently exist in the universities will be swept away by the coming tide. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much for that, Josh, and thanks all the comrades for the excellent contributions. I will now pass back to Hamid to sum up the discussion for about 15 minutes, plus trans when you're ready. Thank you very much, Jack, and thank you everyone who spoke. <laughs> um, I thought it was an excellent discussion. I don't have anything to add to the excellent in interventions that the comrades made. But in reality, these people are very unserious people. You know, you would have thought that when, when you pick out like the best, most prominent academics in the world, you would have put someone who has a bit of brain. But really, every page you read, you can, you can uh, how to say, dismantle their arguments so easily just by scratching the surface. And, um, and in fact, they, they think they're very, very nuanced and, and, and uh, how do you say, advanced and complex in, the, in their way of thinking, profound. But they end up really, when you dissect their writing and spell it out, they end up saying the most childish, crude things possible on earth. As Josh, as Josh said, and I think I also made the similar point in the post-modernism discussion, they, 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 they react to the rigid uh, ideas of the Stalinists. You know, the Stalinists had this thing for, for the colonial world that all countries must follow the exact same stages as Europe had followed. European societies that followed uh, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, socialism. And of course, it, it was no longer possible to develop for capitalism to develop in these countries after the entrance of imperialism, a domestic capitalism. Sorry, the capitalism became a huge block to the development of, of, of these countries. It did create a, a small, powerful working class, but the vast majority of, of the, of the country was in um, was in a state of backwardness of all of these countries. And the only way forward would have been for, for a socialist revolution, which the masses did, uh, did attempt to in India, in uh, Iran, in Iraq, many places, in Sudan. Um, but, uh, but, but the Stalinists uh, uh, attacked this and, and tried to hold it back, saying, no, 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 we have to wait until we have a fully developed uh, industrial democratic bourgeois society before we can continue on to a, uh, a socialist path, which was only an excuse to pull, push their, to put their support behind the nationalists, really. In fact, they built the nationalist movements in, in India, in Turkey, Iran, many places, Argentina. But these guys reacted to, to this rigid view of history 
So, oh no, but the, there isn't any stages at all. It's all just one big stage, <laughs> uh, one fixed, unmovable block, basically. They, they they react against this idea of uh, of time and development. They say they don't they don't accept time is a is a Eurocentric phenomenon concept. There are things that exist beyond time, in other words. And but what is that besides supra historical ideas and religion, which is exactly what religion push, puts forward, which is a um, which is a very rigid view of of anything. They say that there's no laws, everything is flexible, and uh, people can do whatever they want to. There's no order, there's nothing in 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 society. But then they 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 reduce all of European history to one fixed, unchangeable block, going back to Homeric times, according to uh, to Edward Said. Maybe some of them are a bit more uh, are a bit more nuanced, but, but but that is basically what they do. And and it's an extremely charlatan method method that they use. And uh, and 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 they just write whatever comes into their minds, basically. And then they and then they go on to cover all of this with extremely vague language, vague and obscure language. So they they would say one, for instance, in one sentence, they're going to say that oh, there's no objective reality. And then they spend half a page giving caveats and ifs and buts and and so on. And but uh, but to 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 cover it up basically, and even saying the exact opposite. Because they want to, because they need to hide what they really think, which is this is, is extreme idealist subjectivism. Now, I think also it's important to say that this this uh, philosophy is the world outlook of the petty bourgeois. This is a class whose position in society is constantly threatened by, by the working class on the one hand, which is moving up, moving forward, and and that they're in danger of falling into. But it's also uh, uh, dominated by the big bourgeois who use the influence and power over the state and the economy to crush the middle class. And at the same time, it's a completely atomized uh, class, which is in constant competition with each other. Imagine all these uh, academics fighting over the few uh, tenure positions there are. And, the, and, and, and therefore, their starting point is themselves. They look down on the workers who don't understand anything. The, the workers are primitive and and they and and they and they're angry at the at the imperialists and the big bourgeois who don't understand them who don't who don't appreciate their efforts and their talents that they think is their talent obviously and, and so their personal experience becomes their sole measure of the world why can't anyone understand my pain my experience this is what they're all talking about experience, how you experience things and in that way their whole world outlook comes to revolve around their own position in society and it's interesting because they're so obsessed with difference and with being original, but they're extremely predictable. And you go to the through the waves of uh, postmodernist or subjectivist uh, uh, ideas, who's who's come since Nietzsche, and you'll find the same ideas. Um, and even if you look at if you look at them individually, you find a lot of similarities. And they're in fact incre- incredibly predictable people. You know, Edward Said was an academic, literary academic critic in the U.S., and his idea was to call for more Orientals in Western academia, in particular in literature. And although he said that the whole world, the whole of the West was just uh, kind of, uh, uh, how do you say, covered by this Eurocentric grip, grip of Eurocentrism, I guess. But the ac- academic world was different. That was free. Of course, that's... Of course, that's complete nonsense. If anything is not free, it's academia, which is in the complete control of the ruling class. 
the other guy, Dipesh Chakravarti, he was, he was a Bengali in, uh, in Australian academia. And if you see, I mean, if you, if you read his writing, you can imagine that he was not a very good one. And his idea is that you cannot judge uh, the, the, the logic of Indians like we judge others. Um, Judith Butler uh, wrote a book, uh, another postmodernist, about uh, queer theory. Uh, what's this? Uh, gender trouble, the, 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 the kind of uh, the, the, the main book of queer theory, where she admits that this was a uh, kind of a self, self-help uh, project in order for her to come to grips with her being a lesbian, which is, I'm sure, not a nice thing if, if you grew up and are oppressed. And she comes, she, she finds out whatever it is that she has to do. And, and then she says, well, now the rest of the world have to do this too if you want to be progressive. Franz Fanon was a psychiatrist. And then uh, he, he, he analyzes uh, people in, in, in Algeria. But then he takes that uh, psychology, which, which, is, uh, which is based on, on looking at the individual and their, their specific position in, in their environment. And he is, extrapolates those psych- psychoanalysis basically onto all of society. It's extremely uh, amateur and, and very striking, and they do it shamelessly. So when they say that people are Eurocentric and people cannot know reality because they can only uh, they, they, they judge it on the basis of their own prejudices, they're talking about themselves because of their class position does not allow them to do anything else. Uh, and, and of course, they, 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 they think they stand beside class society, but in everything they do, they prove exactly which class they, 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 they belong to. And the iron forces which determine, even on an individual level, uh, the, the iron laws of the class laws, which, uh, which, which determine behavior even on an individual level. I'll finish on that. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I think, I think it's very important that, uh, as I said before, that we go on to an offensive on these ideas. Because a lot of people, a lot of young people are being introduced to these as their first step into politics. They repeat these ideas without fully understanding the consequences. But this doesn't mean that they're fully convinced. It, it, it only means that these ideas hasn't, haven't been challenged. And the only way to challenge them is to go on to, to the offensive. Mild in manner, bold in content, as Marx said. And, and if we do this, we will them and a lot of people who are definitely not convinced by these ideas. And, in, and, and even more important, in the colonial countries, there is a revolutionary fervent, fervent even, even deeper than the one we see in the West. Hundreds of thousands, millions of young people are ready to rebel, ready to go on the streets if, there was, if they were given a, a lead. And if we want to win those people over, we cannot afford to give an inch of compromise to these ideas. For this school, we had almost 300, or we have almost 300 registered from India and almost 800 from Pakistan. If we didn't fight these ideas and if we gave any concessions to them, like the reformists, the Stalinists and the sex do, we could never win these people over. They would be, they would be repelled from internationalist revolutionary Marxism. But if we fight, if we fight these ideas hard and put forward a Marxist internationalist position, we will, we will win them over. And I'm sure that we will. I'll just end it there. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks very much for that excellent sum up, Hamid. I think it's been a really excellent um, discussion. Now, unfortunately, tomorrow is the final day of the school, but we still have plenty of very interesting talks, and you can find the schedule on the website. But anyway, thanks for watching, and see you tomorrow.